You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, let's get into the Word of God this evening, everyone. We are on Psalm 116, if you have your Bibles. And we're going to do 16 and 17 tonight. Father, we ask now as we turn our hearts and our minds towards your Word that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, what your Spirit is saying to the Church. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we are still working our way through the Psalms. Psalm 116 is another one of these Hallel Psalms that were often sung around Passover time and on many of the religious festivals. Now this is actually one of the Psalms that the Lord would have sung at the Last Supper. Do you remember in the the text in the book of Matthew, it tells us that after the meal, they sung hymns. What that means and what was traditional to do at the time is you would sing the Hallel Psalms. So 16 and we've a few, three or four of them here probably would have been sung by the Lord. And I want us to have that in our mind as we go through uh, this text tonight because it gives us another depth to the text of this psalm. Jesus would have sung this right before heading out and going to the Mount of Olives and ending up in the Garden of Gethsemane where he agonized in prayer with his father. Just have that in your mind as we go through this psalm. So let's just read the first four verses. It says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. And then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. And if this is a very personal psalm, and if there was ever a way to open a psalm, it's with those four words. I love that. I love the Lord. I think if we simply stopped there, we would have probably said enough. This is probably the most simple and yet profound declaration of faith that you'll ever find. For me, it's an expression of fulfillment, an expression of a life lived to its fullest. It echoes to me the words of our Lord where he commands... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then that love will overflow to your neighbours, and it will overflow even to your enemies, because it is a love of God. This is the greatest command, and I say that these four words are probably the truest expression of Christianity and biblical Judaism at this time in their most simplest form. These four words will direct all of the conduct in your life. I hope we can all affirm them. I love the Lord, and it's something that will be growing in us every day that we walk with the Lord until we see him as he is. But he doesn't just stop there, he gives us reasons. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication, because he hears. Now for me, this shows us the deep confidence that he has in his God. This is a personal relationship. Now this is something that is unknown to many religions, In many religions, their concept of God is he's too high, too far out, that you cannot communicate with him, you just serve him in fear. And I'm not talking about fear in the way that the Bible uses with reverence, but this shows us something more about the God of Israel, that he is a God that actually hears and someone responds by saying, I love you, Lord. This speaks of communication, this speaks of intimacy, this speaks of a relationship that he had. His deep confidence in God is rooted in the person of God. Reminds me of the verses in 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15, 
where John writes, This is the confidence which we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. We just get the sense that he's so confident in the God that he knows that he has relationship with, he can write in this manner. And that is one of the things that separates Christianity from other religions. We have a personal God who took pains to reveal himself to his creation. It is intimate. It speaks of two participants. It speaks of listening and it speaks of communion, fellowship. These are the things that this verse says to me. And it shows us that this is a true believer, one who is walking intimately with the Lord. And if you are doing that, you will be a person of prayer. And I find that challenging. I think we all know that prayer is, at the same time, one of the most simplest acts that we can do, but quite often it's one of the hardest things to actually do in a way where you feel like you come away having communed with the Lord. You have to be in that place of communion and fellowship, constantly walking. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he says, pray without ceasing. May your life always be in a state of readiness, a state of communication with your Lord. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, you may not be in that situation. But the privilege we have of prayer is the privilege of a true believer. No matter what, the psalmist says here that he will call upon the Lord. Yahweh will be his refuge, will be his comfort, will be his joy, and will be his delight. Good verse 3. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Now, the cords of death, some of your Bibles there may read pains of death, a similar concept. The picture that's being given here is kind of like death is reaching out to him and wrapping around him these cords and trapping him, a little like a, a hunter would maybe try and snare an animal by setting a trap or, or snaring him with wire or something like that. This is the, the idea that's being given here. And I want you again to think, cast your mind back to the Last Supper. Imagine how the Lord would have felt singing this psalm, knowing that his own death was very close. He too would have felt those cords encompassing him at this time as he agonized in prayer, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a prophetic element to these psalms that we cannot miss. This is why they were sung at this time. Even the Apostle Peter, in his great sermon in Acts chapter 2, he used the language from this psalm when he was speaking about the resurrection of the Messiah. In Acts 2, verse 24, he says, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. And that phrase there is pretty much the same phrase, just from the Greek, that we have in our psalm here, the cords of death or the pains of death. He goes on to say, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And he's arguing that although the cords of death encompassed him, the Lord overcame and he defeated death. Now, whatever the psalmist in our psalm here in 116, whatever situation he was in, we're not sure, we're not told, but it seems that it was serious enough that he considered his life to be in grave danger. And he describes it with these graphic terms, the terror of Sheol. And he says he came with distress and it came with sorrow. Now, we all get these moments when terror grips us, when our conscience is troubled, when fear and panic and grief overwhelm us in this life. At some point, living in a fallen world, those things will come upon us. You can have them just by watching the news. You can have them by living in this world. Sometimes these things come to us. Yet, the psalmist knew where to turn to 
in these situations. Because look what he says. He says, then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. For me, this is such a short, humble prayer expressing what we would call childlike faith. Just absolute abandon and trust in a father. Reminds me of Peter on the water, Lord, save me. He just says, O Lord, I beseech you, save my life here. Now, I want, to, I want to take a small digression with you here because I, a lot of things came up when I was studying this and as I was meditating on this verse. I want to just talk about the subject of fear with you for a minute because as I read these verses about the terrors of Sheol, the fear of death, um, I just really could not help think over the last couple of years that we've had. And I spend a lot of time reading various different news articles and trying to keep a finger on the pulse of what is going on in the world, where people are, are reading, what are the latest cultural trends going on. And fear came up a lot this year in the context of COVID-19, but not only in the context of COVID-19. But make no mistake about it, fear has been a critical element in everything that has been going on over the last year. Yes, the pandemic, but we saw it before that. Do you remember all the years we had with Brexit? The fear campaign, the world's going to end, and these sorts of things were going on. Fear is a very powerful weapon. It can be used by people who want to manipulate it. It can be used by Satan. In certain instances, fear can be healthy and safe for us. So there's all these elements that go into it. So don't overstate what I'm going to share with you here. I just want to look at the concept of fear. If you do a Google search, you'll notice that one of the biggest things that people fear is death. If you, particularly if you do a Google search on the fear of death at this time, you'll find about five pages, just, well, probably more, but I only looked through the first five, blog post after blog post, clinical survey after, after NHS guidelines, all dealing with the fear of death. Multitudes of screens offering help for people, offering guidelines, offering all different sorts of services that people could try and do to overcome this fear of death. Now, reading some of these is fascinating, some of it's heartbreaking, some of it's amazingly frustrating, but there's a few that stood out to me. This is one from the Harley Therapy uh, counselling blog, they're a clinic. It's called The Fear of Death When the Pandemic Makes Us Face Mortality. And in the Western world, we've maybe been shielded a bit from mortality. In many parts of the world, the facing mortality is actually something that happens on a much more face-to-face uh, -face level, and they have different views of it. You can even tell this if you go back a few hundred years into our history, when you would have nine children with the hope that maybe five would survive past three or four. It's just a different uh, understanding. But this has given us, in, in the 21st century in the Western world, made us face mortality. They had an article there at the Harley Clinic. They said, why are we terrified of COVID-19? Yes, we're losing our lifestyles and we don't know what lies ahead. But for many, beneath this lies a fear of death. The article went on. I'm going to give you a few pieces of it here. It said, the fear of death, if examined, can be largely about other things entirely underneath the surface. And they list four or five here. They say, we are afraid of not having done enough with our lives, leaving others behind, not being organized and leaving a mess for others to sort, afraid of being forgotten. Many are afraid of what comes after death. Many are afraid of pain and suffering. Now, I'm, again, I'm not making a point whether these are right or wrong to have these feelings. I think we're human. We all have these feelings at some point. But what was fascinating was their solutions. And they, this was a pretty long blog post. They listed about seven solutions. The first one was make sure you organize your own death. 
Now, I read this and I thought, where are they going with this? What, what obviously are they talking about? They are simply talking about things like make sure you've got all your paperwork in order so that you don't burden someone else with it after your death. That was one of their things. Uh, and there was many just some sort of practical things like that. And then they said, make sure you practice mindfulness. And they used this whole section to explain that fear has been used to incite intolerance and bigotry and people sticking to their views without exposing themselves to alternative views. And they tried to explain some of the cultural trends that we've seen in the mindset of fear. And their answer to this was practicing what they call mindfulness. Now, you may be aware of the term mindfulness. It's actually becoming more and more common, which is why at first I thought it was maybe rather benign, a way of simply helping people who were struggling with various issues to calm themselves down. And there may still be some of that element to it. But the more I'm seeing it, and the more way I'm seeing it being used is I'm pretty much convinced now that this is a, a spiritual expression of a secular religion. And what I mean by that is that this view of secularism, which is a hard materialistic worldview, that basically does not allow for Christianity, which is where the, the worldview of our nation has been in previous times. But as this has gone on and on and on now, these organisations have seen that there is a part of human nature that secularism is not reaching. Mental health is on the rise, fear is on the rise, anxiety is on the rise. People are searching for spiritual things because mankind is incurably religious, you cannot deny it, and secularism had nothing to offer in this regard. And I see this and this promotion of mindfulness as what they are now offering to fill that spiritual void that they cannot escape in people's minds but yet they are unwilling to name the name of Jesus as a solution to that, so they have to have something else to put in its place, and this is mindfulness. It's breathing techniques and various other things drawn together from loads of different sources. Uh, some of it doesn't bother me at all. Some of it bothers me a lot. But it's not so much that that I'm getting at. It's, what's offer it's being offered as a substitute, a spiritual part of a secular, godless religion. Let me read to you the next one. So, Pisa... Practice mindfulness as one of their solutions. Remember, this is in the context of overcoming fear of death. And the next one was connect to something bigger than yourself. And they said, quote, it's not about believing in God or finding religion just because of the coronavirus. It's about finding something that gives things a bigger meaning for you personally. Very vague, non-committal statement on various things. They then quote a study on religion and spirituality that says that there was a study that was done a while ago where they studied end-of-life caregivers and they found that religion did improve the ability for people to cope with death. They just mention it in a footnote, but they say it's about connecting with something bigger than yourself and you are left to fill in the blank of what that may be for your life particularly. And it went on and on like this, and I read similar sorts of things on three or four of these blogs. And I'll be frank, as I dwelt on quite really quite how pathetic some of these options were to the magnitude of the problem that we're facing. I was reading this psalm at the same time studying, and I, my thoughts went back to this psalm. If only they knew what this psalmist knew, that when the terrors of death, when the terrors of Sheol come up and entangle us and ensnare us, that we could say, Lord, I beseech you, save me. That is the refuge that we have. But because of basically a commitment to the secular religion of mindfulness or a commitment to the political correctness. You are not allowed to actually come out and say that clearly these days. 
and their hands are tied, and thus you get endless pages of very vague, and I would say not that helpful, guidelines. Again, that's my personal opinion, I'm not putting that on anyone, but you can go on, Google it, read some of these blogs, see what you think for yourself. But that was only one element of thing that struck me. Another element that I was thinking about in light of this was just how powerful a weapon fear is. We've seen this over the last few years, and we've seen it, I could give you many historical examples. If you go back into the war, propaganda and fear was obviously one of the main ways that armies gathered support. Even the British army did this, all the Allies did it, it was how they got troops to sign up in many ways. But fear is a very powerful weapon. I was looking at a book recently that's been making uh, quite a lot of noise. It's called State of Fear, Weaponizing Fear During COVID-19. Now, please don't make a political point from what I'm saying. Don't go further than what I'm saying. My, my focus here is on how it is easy to manipulate fear. COVID is obviously being used because it's current. There are many other things. We saw it with the CRT and the race riots. We've seen it, like I said, with Brexit. We've seen it with many different things. But this is a book. Let me read to you just from the introduction. Uh, I think this was an article in The Telegraph I was reading this. It says, this is a book about fear, fear of a virus, but more fear of death. Fear of losing our jobs, our democracy, our human connections, our health and our minds. It's also about how the government is able to weaponize fear against us for our best interests until we have become one of the most frightened countries in the world. From roadside signs telling us to stay alert, the incessantly doom-laden media commentary, the radio that comes through our cars, to the wearing of masks that keep it in our front of our face the whole time, we are afraid of each other. We are vectors of transmission, agents of disease. We've become afraid of our own judgment about how to manage the minutiae of our lives. We need directions on how to hug, who to hug, whether to share spoons. We need guidance about whether we can sit with a friend on, the, on a bench. But perhaps we need to be more afraid of how easily manipulated we can be. In one of the most extraordinary documents ever revealed to the British public, the behavioural scientist advising the UK government and I've read this document. It's the, the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviour. This is a group that's part of the SAGE Advisory Council and they, they deal with some of these issues. There was a document put out March 22nd, 2020, and it was called Options for Increasing Adherence to Social Distancing Measures. So this is behavior, it's a behavioural psychology, basically. It's how to get people to obey. And it's quite a, a shocking, a lot of it's non-related at all. But there are a few phrases that stood out, and particularly this, which... This book is making the argument that this is quite unprecedented for our time period. It says this in this report, a substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. It could be that they are reassured by the low death rates in their demographic, and although levels of concern go up and down, but as a result, this report recommends, quote, the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging. In essence, the government advice was to frighten the British public to encourage adherence to these measures without complaint. And again, we actually, this is saying it's something new. This has been done many times in history before, but they have frightened the British public to the point that many people have not left their houses for years. Many people have not seen families for years, even in a safe, socially distanced manner, we are all so susceptible to fear. And overall, the book is a fascinating look at how fear and manipulation work. And I do, do think it explains much of our current situation. But 
why I'm getting into this is I want you to put all these three things together. How easy it is to fear, to put the fear, particularly when it's something that involves death, which COVID does involve death, when you have people who don't generally have a religious worldview to their culture, they, the best they can offer is something called mindfulness to people to overcome the fear of death. It's no wonder that people are easily manipulated by fear because that's what we have. Now, I'm not saying because you're a Christian, you mustn't, you know, you still must have a healthy fear of things that are dangerous. Again, don't go beyond what I'm saying here. But I am just saying, as I read these two things, I've seen what's been going on in the world, and we meditate on this psalm, that there is a contrast that comes to my mind. When I look back and I read about what the church has done historically, when I see what is going on in various places of the world today and what the church is doing. And this is something that's shown up many times. I want to give you a, a historical perspective now, just to contrast some of this. Many of you know John and Charles Wesley, the early Methodist movement, the revival that, that changed the face of England. One of the things that we've lost that is different with religion today is the Methodists made sure that death was a common discussion in their ministries and in their households. They had whole guidelines of how to do this. It was a focus of their ministry. And the reason why is because they saw great comfort and strong witness in telling people and speaking about death because it actually confirmed the truth of what their gospel message was, that Christ has overcome death and we need not fear death in that way. John Wesley is known for saying he made a famous boast. He said, our people die well. He's talking about the Methodists at this time. Our people die well. A physician, a doctor who treated several Methodists during the end of their life, he made this claim to Charles Wesley. He said, most people die for fear of dying, but I never met with such people as yours. They are none of them afraid of death. They are calm and patient and resigned to the last. Now, I'm not saying this is going to apply to everyone, but I want you to understand the general principle here. The Methodists made it a point to speak of these things. Think of the psalmist. What was his first declaration we just read? First thing he said was, I love the Lord. And then he gets fear of death comes into his life and he cries to the Lord, Lord, I beseech you, save me. There's actually a whole book called Our People Die Well, and it's a history this is what used to be circulated. It's a history of early Methodist leaders in their last and final days. It's extremely encouraging to read. It's an odd book. It's not a really book that you'd buy today. I think you can get it on Amazon still, but it's probably out of print or on a print on demand. But it's called Our People Die Well. The first story in this book is of Samuel Wesley. Samuel was the father of John and Charles, married to Susanna. He was a minister for over 40 years. Him and his wife had 19 children. Many of them died in infancy. He struggled financially his whole life. He spent many months in debtor's prison, which is not a nice place in these days. He was an uncompromising preacher. Because of this, he suffered many attacks from his local community. His, uh, his cattle was killed. His crops were destroyed. His farm was attacked because people were unhappy with the message of repentance that he preached. In later years, when his health was declining, his wife wrote this. Susanna wrote this to their son, John. He said, she said, your father is in a very bad state of health. He sleeps little and eats less. He seems not to have any apprehension of his approaching exit, but I fear he has but a short time to live. She continues, it is with much pain and difficulty that he performs divine service on the Lord's day. Everybody observes his decay but himself. He acted on the maxim, rather wear out than rust out and he sunk fairly worn out with labours, old age and infirmities. 
Now both of his sons, John and Charles, were with him at his bedside when he died, and the former provided the following brief account by letter to one of their brothers, dated March the 22nd, 1746. He said, My father, during his last illness, which continued eight months, enjoyed a clear sense of his acceptance with God. I heard him express it more than once, the inner witness, the inward witness, he said to me. That is the proof, the strongest proof of Christianity. And when I asked him, the time of his change drawing nigh, Sir, are you in much pain? He answered aloud with a smile, God does chasten me with pain, yes, all my bones with strong pain, but I thank him for all, I bless him for all, and I love him for all. I love him for all. Doesn't that not remind you of the first verse of this psalm? I love the Lord. This is a man who had deep communion with God. And you notice the way that the Methodists spoke of death there in that little quote. They didn't say it death, they said his change is coming. That is how they spoke of it for those that know the Lord. His change is coming. He is in one moment going to be in the presence of the Lord. Let's read verse 5 and, and work our way through this. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord pre preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your nest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted, I said in my alarm, all men are liars. In this verse 5 here, you see the character of God that inspires such faith. It's threefold. Gracious, righteous, and compassionate. Now that is a wonderful threefold chord that we have there, that's speaking of these attributes of God. God is gracious, he is righteous, and he is compassionate. And we actually find these threefold attributes many times in the psalm psalm 112 verse 4 says light arises in the darkness for the upright he is gracious compassionate and righteous and i believe he's drawing on exodus 34 verse 6 here you remember when the lord passed by in front of him and he said the lord the lord god compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness these are the same three elements there being drawn from that amazing passage in the book of exodus Graciousness is talking about the dispensing of unmerited favour, quite literally what we call grace in the New Testament. Righteous, this means acting with justice and rightness in full accord with the divine standards in keeping with the covenant that he has made. That's righteous. That's the part we often don't like to think about, about God, but it's also very essential to understanding why he could do what he did and make our atonement for us. It also says he is compassionate. That means he is merciful and he is full of loving kindness. Look at verse 9. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. You see, the psalmist's deliverance by the Lord here resulted again that he would be in intimate fellowship with God. When God comes through for you in a time of distress, it strengthens your relationship. I believe sometimes this is why the Lord lets us get into those situations where we cannot possibly see a human way out because that is the time that he could act. I think if we, and we do this maybe in the Western world, our first recourse is to go to our safety zones, isn't it? We can fix a problem, and you've probably been daydreaming about this in certain points in life. If I, had, if I just had the money to do this, I could sort that out. I could give this much to that mission. It would all be great. I'm not saying that's bad, but you see how easily it is in our mind to go like that. Sometimes I believe God lets us 
into those situations where we enter the valley of death, where the cords of death do encompass us, where we get that terror and fear, and we have to cry out, Lord, I beseech you, save me. And then he comes through and he acts. And then a little later on, we find ourselves walking with the Lord in deeper intimacy. This language here, walking with the Lord, evokes to me the memory of Genesis, right back in the Garden of Eden, where it says Adam and Eve walked with God. They were in that closer fellowship with God there. I believe that's the picture that we're being given here. And this phrase, land of the living, again, it's a common phrase throughout the Old Testament. It has meaning. Most particularly, it has a messianic application. In Isaiah 53, you may remember, speaking of the Messiah to come, it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. You see, the land of the living is contrasted with death there, which is the very same thing that the psalmist is doing here. He was rescued from death, and he walked in the land of the living. The Messiah died for all of those in the land of the living. He was cut off for them. I want you to remember again, this is all the more moving, I think, when you remember that this is what the the Lord would have sung before he ended up heading to the garden, ultimately to the cross. Let's read verses 12. Let's just read the rest of the psalm, in fact. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I shall lift the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. O Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. O may it be in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So the idea that we have here is simply one of sheer gratitude. He's saying, what can I give to the Lord for all that he benefits me? What can I render to the Lord, it says? Well, simply, the answer he comes up with, he says he will lift up, that means in many ways, to proclaim the cup of salvation, and he will call on him. All his duties will be fulfilled in the presence of all people. He will lift up what God has done for him. He will, pro- will proclaim the salvation of the Lord in front of all people publicly in the midst of Israel in this context, applying that to ourselves into the world. What does this basically mean? It means he lived for him. What could he render to the Lord for everything that the Lord has done? There's nothing he could add to it. The only thing he can do is live for the Lord. And you apply this to the first verse. He loved the Lord and he lived for the Lord. Is that not the most simplest expression of Christianity that we could really have? If you wanted to really strip it down to the basics, we love the Lord and we live for the Lord because of who he is and because of what he's done. That is what he requires of us. This is what the, that famous verse, what does the Lord require of us but to walk humbly and do justice with our Lord. You remember that verse. This is the same principle here. And this is the true motivation that we should have for service. In the church and in the world, it is a service that is based and motivated by gratitude for his loving kindness. I believe if we serve with any other motive, we will eventually suffer loss 
or we will burn ourselves out, or we will become disillusioned. But when we serve the Lord simply motivated by gratitude because of his loving kindness, then we can express like the psalmist did here, I love the Lord, I call upon the Lord, I live for the Lord. Now let's talk about this cup of salvation, because again, phrases like this always stand out to me. It's hard to know whether he's speaking of a specific cup, whether he has one of the drink offerings in mind from the temple uh, sacrifice or the tabernacle sacrifice, whether it's a, a literal or a figurative cup that he's speaking of. Uh, we know cup is often used in a, in a figurative way. Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me in that manner. So we don't know. But again, think of Jesus at the Last Supper. He's there with his disciples. Death is coming to him pretty imminently. After the meal is when they would have sung these psalms. So it's more than likely that Psalm 116 would have been one of these ones that he sung after the meal. After the meal was also when they partook of the third cup of the Passover meal, which was actually called the cup of salvation or the cup of redemption. So the way my mind works is I like to think that that probably was an event that coincided within that, the context of that meal, the cup of salvation was in fact the one that, we, that he was referring to here because that is the one that points to the redemption and what the psalmist is explaining here, what can I give back to the Lord? It's just lift up his redemption, lift up his salvation, tell people, proclaim people what he has done, which is what that third cup symbolized. And it's that cup, remember, that he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember, we proclaim. That is the mission of the church, really. We remember, we proclaim, we love the Lord, we live for him. Simple, basic ecclesiology. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, it says in verse 15. Now, this is an unusual verse. It's actually a very popular verse in church history, particularly with the early Methodists. This was a verse that they would use to comfort one another. People misunderstand it. It is not saying in any way that God likes it when his servants die. Get that out of your head. It's an awkward word to translate, but what it's really saying is it's not a trivial thing. God cares deeply when his servants die. He is watching over his servants at all time. And it's a comforting verse because it almost gives us a picture of a God who is interested in all of our lives, in the beginning, in the progress, and in the earthly conclusion. It gives us an image of the Lord who is waiting for the saints as they take their last step from their earthly pilgrimage and they depart from the company of loved ones or they depart from the company of those who would do them harm and they enter paradise with him. The picture is of a Lord that is waiting at the threshold to welcome them into eternity because it's a God that knows them, that they've communed with. This goes back to the first part of the psalm. Now, there are several reasons why the death of his saints is considered precious. For me, the chief one is probably that his son purchased these people. His son died for them. It's one reason why they are precious. The death of the Lord's godly ones is precious because he gave them all the days of their life. He ordered the days of their life. All is according to God's plan. The death of the Lord's godly ones is precious because ultimately they end up in his presence. I'm going to read you just one more little section from this is actually from the Methodist book I'm referring to, Our People Die Well. The whole introduction is based on some, this verse that I've just quoted uh, the death of his godly ones. He gives a number of reasons. I'll just read to you one. He says, A second reason for God's counting precious the death of his saints may be observed in the fact that at the time of death, a saint often has a greater response of trust and an increased desire for the delights of God's presence. 
Whatever the degree of dependence upon God there may have been during life's passage, there is no time when dependence upon the merits of Christ's atonement is more fully ex exercised than in the hour of death's approach. The precious blood of Christ is then viewed with utmost value, for it is the object of all their trust. Because if you think about it, if you've ever read testimonies of saints on their deathbed, it's that time when, like never before in your life, you know that nothing is coming with you. It doesn't matter if you're in a mansion, if you're, you're on, a, on a bed in a slum, you know at that moment nothing matters except whether you're going to be with the Lord. So you trust and you have no, nowhere else to look except for the atonement of Christ. I shall pay my vows, verse 18 and 19. O oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O oh, Jerusalem, praise the Lord. I like the ending of this, in the courts of the Lord's house. This is the tabernacle, obviously. What was in the courts? A big altar was in the courts, symbolizing and picturing for us the cross of Christ. We should always be praising God and living in the shadow of the cross near that altar. And the psalm ends with an exhortation for all the living to praise the Lord. In the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Now, we're going to go straight on and do 117. Don't worry, it's a two-verse psalm. Let's read it. Praise the Lord, all nations. Lord him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great towards us and the truth of the Lord is everlasting Praise the Lord. What a wonderful psalm that is. Now, many people make a big point that this is the exact middle of the entire Bible. And a lot of people do fanciful charts and things like that. It doesn't impress me, to be frank, because it's, it's the middle of the Protestant Bible in the English translation. It doesn't really work when you start going into languages. It's an interesting fact. But what more impresses me is what the text actually says here. It's the two-verse psalm, which means it is, in fact, the shortest psalm in the entire Bible, but it is one of the richest in its content. Psalm 115 was a national psalm. Psalm 116 that we've just studied was very personal in nature. Psalm 117, we could say, is a universal or a global psalm. It begins with a universal summons to praise the Lord. It says, all nations. And this immediately shows us the mission of God was always meant to be universal in scope. And this echoes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Do you remember in Genesis 12, verse 2, it says, those that bless you will bless you, those that curse you will curse you, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. So that universal element of God's mission went right back to the beginning. So this is why it wasn't like Israel was A and that went wrong and the church was B. These things were always included in part of God's plan. And again, remember, this was a Hillel psalm. It was sung at the Last Supper. And I find this, again, fascinating because this global summons, for me, anticipates the universal nature of the gospel message. Because through the message, through the cross of Christ, the Lord is redeeming for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that is exactly what this psalm is addressing. All nations, praise the Lord. It's looking to the future. And this is actually how the Apostle Paul applies this psalm. Romans chapter 15, he actually quotes this small psalm here. I'll read it to you. It says, For I say that Christ, this is verse 8 of chapter 15 of Romans, I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So his whole part of this, book of, this part of the book of Romans is explaining that the Gentiles were always included 
in the, the plan of God. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing your name. Verse 10, again he says rejoice with his people, verse 11, and again, and then he quotes from this psalm, praise the Lord all you Gentiles, let all the peoples praise him. That's pretty impressive that a two-verse psalm is quoted in the book of Romans, I find, because it's so uh, important. Praise the Lord, all you nations. And then it says, Lord him. That's what my translation says. Some, some, some translations just say, praise him again, all you peoples. What, it basically, what Lord to Lord basically means is that you say praiseworthy things about the person that you or the thing that you are lording. You speak intelligently and accurately about the Lord and you praise him for what he has done. And then in verse 2, we are given the reasons for this praise, and I love this verse. Just as the first part of the verse in Psalm 116, do you remember it said, I love the Lord, we could say that is the most stripped-back creed that we could ever have for our faith. I believe verse 2 of 117 is probably the most stripped-back and simplest summation of Christian doctrine of God that we have in the Bible. You see, ultimately, all people are to praise him because of who he is. And the two outstanding qualities that God demonstrates and that are highlighted in this verse are loving kindness and truth. And that tells us a lot about God and the psalmist's view of God, someone who could write such intimate things about God. The attributes that he wants to highlight in the summons of universal praise to the world is that God is a God of loving kindness and truth. The word in Hebrew is hesed. It's a very rich and deep Hebrew word. It speaks of great, covenantal, loyal, faithful love. A God who keeps his covenant, a God whose word cannot be broken, a God who can be known and a God who reveals himself to his people. It's very equivalent to like an Old Testament word that we would say about grace in the New Testament. But not only that, that is who he is. That is one of the reasons why we worship him. But Look at the focus of this loving kindness. His loving kindness is what? Great towards us. We are the focus, the object of such a love, of such a divine being. Yes, one who is holy, who is righteous, who is just, but also one who is full of loving kindness and truth. And it is that that he has put on us. We are the objects of his great love. And that truth alone should see us through many storms of life. It says also that his truth is everlasting, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. The Hebrew word for truth here is emet, and that may be translated in your Bibles. It is in many places in the Old Testament simply rendered as faithfulness. Uh, it has the same concept to it. Because the Lord is true, he is loyal, he's reliable, he's truthful, he's trustworthy, he's a faithful God. Those two things, that's why they often go together, loving kindness and truth, because they're two sides of the same coin. Outstanding among all of God's great qualities that the psalmist highlights when he's calling on the whole earth to praise him are his loyal love and faithfulness. This is why the Apostle Paul writes that the goal of instruction, the whole object of the entire Torah, the entire sacrificial system, everything that he has done is love. Because God is love. And ultimately, everything that we've been through, yes, the atonement, redemption, sin, is for that aim that he has a people that can say, like the psalmist said, I love the Lord. And he says back, my loving kindness is upon you. And that is the message that we have for the world. And when you think back to what those clinics are offering people, vague mindfulness, 
I'm not demeaning some of those areas, don't misunderstand, but the message that we have of a God like that who loves is timeless, it's eternal, and that is what people really need. And that is what the mission of the church is. We are to tell the nations. We are to say, like the psalmist says here, we offer an invitation to the world. We beg people to repent and be reconciled with a God who loves them like that. That is our mission. And this psalm closes as it begins with an exhortation to praise the Lord. G. Campbell Morgan, the uh, great Bible expositor, he said, by the union of grace and truth in and through Jesus, the call to praise went out to all nations and all peoples. And it is still doing that today. And it will be doing that as long as the church is on this earth until the day when the time is come that the Lord returns. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.